0: In our pursuit of holiness, after proper preparation, our first task is to focus on who God is. Because God is our holiness, we are not. And so therefore, we must understand who He is. A.W. Tozer has said that the most portentous fact about a man, the most predictive fact about a man is how he conceives God to be who he conceives God to be in his heart. Because, subconsciously, he will spend the rest of his life running to or away from that concept. It is very important that we have an accurate understanding of who God is. Jesus said, John chapter 4, that they who worship him must worship him in spirit, and in truth. You see, all of our worship is for naught if we're not worshiping the true God and having an understanding of who He really is. So to that end, let me quote Tozier again as he says, the most significant obligation of the church in this day is to purify and elevate its concept of God so that it is more worthy of him and more worthy of her. You see, we only hurt ourselves when we have an inadequate or substandard understanding of God. Yet, it is one of the most difficult tasks in this day to to grasp that which is so far beyond us, or even to have the will to do so. Because both our church and our culture have been trained that unless it suits us, we don't pay attention to it. It's very difficult, especially when the church pays more attention to how we do things than to whom we seek and who we do them for. Now, that's very easy in this day to get caught up in the methods instead of the mystery. Most books that are sold are how-to books. We are very practical people. We want utility to our religion, and that is perfectly understandable. Becky and I, uh, uh, this week, and along with uh, Patty Gable, the head of our tape ministry here, went to uh, Los Angeles to the National Religious Broadcasters uh, Convention. Now, <laughs> this was a trip. Let me tell you a little about this. The reason we went out was... Uh, you know, there were two reasons, actually. You, many of you know my wife uh, heads up uh, fit for the journey here. It's, uh, it's about six months old, and it's a little radio ministry. We're on about 20 stations so far. And, and basically what it is is it helps people um, uh, fish with my sermons. Uh, they, can, they can kind of uh, get a, 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 a locale on their heart. Maybe it's their hometown. Maybe it's just some city that God's laid on their heart. And they buy the airtime for that city and put my sermons on and they just fish, see what God will do. And we've had some of the most wonderful responses to this. Um, And so, but somebody said to us, you know, if you're going to really do that, you ought to go out and find out what you're doing because you don't know what you're doing, which is true. Uh, That's never stopped us before, but we have no idea what we're doing. (laughs) The other reason we went out is because uh, the elders have uh, recognized the necessity, really, And the opportunity of of using the developing technology to include more people. God is growing this church at such a rate that we cannot include all that want to be a part of us. And so in order to not close them off, I don't know how many people got turned away from church this weekend. But but in, in order to not have that happen, there's only so many... 100 services you can have during the week and and uh, and there's only so many you can accommodate each service and how many you know people you can reshuffle. And so they said, you know, sooner or later we really need to just broadcast one of those services so that people can have more access to it and they don't, you know, they they aren't completely shut out. So we went to look at some of that developing technology. Well, I want to tell you how hard it is to keep a focus on who God is instead of how we should do God's things. That was a fascinating place, and it was well worth the trip, and we we learned lots. But it was very distracting because it was much more readily available to us to look at the technology instead of concentrating on the the benefactor, the beneficiary, the one who gave it to us to use. Now, Moses knew that feeling. He was going to face Pharaoh. And there were plenty of questions in his heart about that. He kept saying to God, I can't do this thing. I can't even talk well. And so finally God says, look, Moses, you're doing it. I've chosen you. Who made mouths? Don't give me excuses. You're doing it. And so Moses looked at God and he knew this was the most important question that he would answer for the people to whom he was sent. He said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13... Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? I want you to notice, he hasn't even got to Pharaoh telling who who, who, uh, 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 God is to Pharaoh yet. He's talking to the believing community. The believing community needs to know who God is. That was his first task. And so God answered him like this. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. You can't box me up. You can't dumb me down. You can't confine me to your little pieces of understanding. I cannot be held in wood or stone. Tell them I am the God who is higher than they are. That is what the church needs to learn today. And it is so difficult in this culture that is slowly turning the attention from God who was transcendent to them to they who want to become the center of the universe. I hope it is not passing your attention or your note what is happening in the court systems of today. A few years ago, there was a a case decided in the Supreme Court, uh, Casey versus the State of Pennsylvania. It was an abortion rights case. And in that, the Supreme Court wrote these words. It is the right of a person to decide what relationship they have to the cosmos, what their place is in the universe, and that right is central to the due process clause of the Constitution. I cannot tell you what a difference that was those words written into that Supreme Court decision from how the court has traditionally decided cases. Up until a few decades ago, the court always recognized in writing the supremacy of God. Do you understand what just happened? What just happened is they said, no, it is the person's obligation to decide who they are in the universe. They are central now in the universe. It should come as no surprise that just a short time ago, Judge Joseph Davis in Florida became the first judge to acquiesce to someone's desire to end their own lives, to say that that is okay with the state. It should come as no surprise that that would follow from the abortion, abortion rights issue. It should come as no surprise, because that is the character. Now, we want to become the gods who decides when life begins and when it ends. We want to become the center of the universe. As a matter of fact, the council for this man Hall, his name was Revis, and he said, you know, the only thing that is holding us back is an old 1868 law that is written purely with religious purposes he did not know how much truth he was speaking. Only pure religious purposes are between us and self-destruction. Only purely religious purposes are between us destroying ourselves. Only as we have a standard that is higher than we are Can we call people to courage instead of cowardice and have life make sense? Only that standard stands both in individuals and in society between us and our absolute killing, literally, of that people of whom we used to be a part. And only the church as an institution is left to call that out. Every other institution, if the courts are succumbing, don't you think legislation will will, will soon take after the courts because they can't write legislation that will pass the courts? It's going to conform. Michael Sandlin, who is the uh, uh, professor of government at Harvard University, has just written a book called Democracy's Discontents. And in that book he writes, and he doesn't write from a believer's perspective. In that book he writes this. Our government is trying so hard to be morally neutral that it will eventuate in the destruction of what we have known as the civilization. He he said, it is an admirable trait in a pluralistic society to want to be tolerant. And I agree with that. On a personal level, toleration is an admirable trait. But, he said, when that becomes the focus of a people when there is no courage to say what's right and what's wrong, what happens is that anything then can destroy that people as a people because all right and wrong is now resident in individuals, and they are left to make up their own mind as to what is right and wrong. How long can a people last like that? I believe that is, this is my words, not his, the political form of AIDS. AIDS itself does not inflict harm upon the body. It is not itself uh, a, a pernicious evil. What it is, it's, it's a defenselessness against evil. So that even the smallest disease, now having no hindrance, can finally kill the person. And so it is with our society. If society has no defense, even the smallest ills accumulated can kill our society. Do you see how us becoming the center of the universe, us deciding for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, is ultimately destructive? That's happening in education. In the highest realms of education, now please, I'm not... Public school teachers, Christian school teachers, you guys are the heroes. You guys are missionaries. We're praying for you. We're pulling for you. That's some of the toughest mission ground in the world. So please don't take offense at this. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those people who are now designing the curriculums, especially at the highest levels in the colleges, have switched from a core value curriculum, a, a core of, of, of knowledge that everybody must learn in order to be educated, to a curriculum based on felt needs. That's the big thing these days. So that beginning, and I hope it doesn't trickle down too far, but I'm afraid it will, beginning with the colleges, everyone's designing kind of their own personal course of study. To the extent that no one is becoming very educated anymore, or at least not broadly so. The professors at Yale Divinity School, listen to this, have recently said that most of the students in Yale Divinity School, when they come in, can't name most of the books of the Bible. Yale Divinity School Do you see if government is not our stabilizing force, if education is not our destabilizing force, then who have we got to hope in? Well, the church and I'd like to tell you that the church has taken a different stance. I'd like to tell you that the church has not tried to pretend that God was just like us. By the way, if you want a scripture for that, Psalm verse 50. Verse, I'm sorry, chapter 50, verse 21 says exactly that. God is talking to Israel. He's noting their sin. And he's noting that just because he didn't hop right, just hop right on them, they came to a wrong conclusion. Look at what it says. It says, these things you have done. It's talking about their sinfulness. And I kept silence. In other words, there were not immediate consequences in every case. So they made a wrong assumption. Read what it is. So you thought... I was just like you. There it is. You thought what you were thinking would be what I was thinking. And God says, I will reprove you. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways higher than your ways. Now, isn't there hope in the church? Well, there is limited hope in the church because the church is taking on many of the characteristics of the culture. The church starting some years ago, started this liberal trend, mostly, again, in the bureaucracies, not in the pews, that we would, for the sake of people understanding who God was, become relational. And we would explain everybody in terms that they could understand. Now that, in part, is very good, and I'm sure the motivations were good. God, in the incarnation, became relational. That's not a bad thing. God, in Jesus Christ, became enough like us so that we could see who He was. But listen to this. God did not leave His high and holy place by coming down. He did not give up all of His omnipotence by becoming vulnerable in weakness for us. They both coexisted. And so therefore, we must explain God in language that people can understand, but we must not only stay there. You know what happens to the church? The church begins to just cater to people instead of truly speaking the truth. The church begins to tell people how wonderful they are when we all know we're not. The church begins to tickle ears. The church begins to please people. Thirty years ago, a certain denomination I won't name started down this liberal road. They've lost... A thousand members a week for the last 30 years. Why? Because people are smarter than that. People don't want to come and hear lies. People don't want to come here God's just like them. They know better than that. People don't want pablum. They want truth. That's the only thing that's worth their time. In, in, in 15 denominations, the most liberal denominations, there was a survey done, and the divorce rate among the clergy was no different than the divorce rate among the general population. Now something's wrong here. What's wrong? The church lost its sense of the transcendence of God, of those high and holy standards that never change. When we were in California, we went to a, we went to a church out there that I've been wanting to go to for some time. It's just south of Los Angeles. It's a neat church and, it's, and I don't want to, and all, at all um, uh, play this place down, because they've done a lot of good things, a lot of things that we can learn from. They're using technology in a way that really involves people instead of looks, makes it look artificial. They, they got parking lot attendants that ma- that make you glad to be stuck in traffic. Now, can we learn something from that, or what? You know? They've got this... I mean, they got a lot going on. Um, uh, and, and so we went to this, went to, the, went to the church. Of course, we saw Northland people there. We're all over the place, I'm telling you. Aren't you? Yeah, well, we used to go to Northland. So... Um, but walked into the place. Worship was fantastic. The, the senior pastor wasn't preaching, but the the uh, youth pastor was, and gave one of the most phenomenal sermons. I, this guy is a preacher par excellence, absolutely excellent. But during the whole thing, I just kept getting more and more uncomfortable, and I couldn't figure out why. At first, I thought it was just because they were uh, they were a church that was a little bit too relaxed for me, you know. And and but that's I don't think that's possible. I, uh, the but, uh, but the, the, none of the pastors wore ties, you know, they all open-collared shirts, carried around coffee, you know. Even the preacher, you know, came out in this open-collared shirt, and I thought, well, you know, I wanted to iron his shirt. Um. <laughs> but, you know I, know, I know it's not what you wear. God doesn't care what you wear. It's in your heart. I know that, so that couldn't be it. And as he preached, I finally put my finger on it. He kept saying over and over again, can you relate? Can you relate? Can you relate? And he told a story about his youth pastor who who was, I mean, he had, he said there was Jesus and his youth pastor, just a little bit under Jesus. And he said, this guy was so great when I was growing up and so intimidating. He said, I went through a period in my life where I think if all I had to look at was this guy, I'd have dropped out. But, But God sent me somebody who was just a absolutely continual failure. He just happened to be a Christian. But it was a continual failure. So I looked at this guy and said, I can do that. And so he said, that's kind of how I stuck with it. Now, understand, I do believe that we can be intimidated by people who have it all together. And I do know that we need encouragement that that we're not the only ones that are failing. There's somebody else out there having a rough time. I know that, and God sends us people who who keep failing and keep trying, and they are inspirational to us. But what He had done is completely lopped off the other end to say, "But you know what? There's a higher goal that I want to get to someday." And and the, then the character or the spirit, and and I can't judge a church with one Sunday, and I know and I know there there are better churches than this, but here's where a church could go. And I say this not as a criticism of their church, but as a warning to ours. We can very well and very easily slip into the mentality that God is about making one another comfortable and God is about confining him to our mentality and what we like to do. Just, listen to this, just as important in God as what we can relate to is what we can't relate to. Just as important as the low enough for us to eat is the high enough for us to be boggled by. Just as important as that tender love and forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ is that absolutely awe-inspiring mystery of God that holds us spellbound. That's important, and and I'll tell you why it's important. It's important because unless we concentrate on the righteousness of God, all we will have left is our own works, and we will begin to speak out of our own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. You see, that's what happened to Job. Job was a righteous man, but when he was going through his troubles, everybody in that whole book said what they thought God was saying. All of his friends, and Job included, began to speak what they thought God was doing. None of it was accurate. It wasn't until the last chapter of that book that Job finally shuts up and says to God, You know what? I've been saying all this stuff. I didn't have any idea what I was talking about. What a great admission. Didn't have any idea what I was talking about. You know what, God? I'm going to be quiet and let you speak to me. What a great revelation. Parenthetically, while I was out at the at the uh, at the NRB, of course all the biggies were out there, all the radio broadcast all the radio preachers and TV preachers and all that kind of stuff. It was so interesting to watch them all. You know, then kind of they're going around with their entourage, you know, and you know, and doing, doing with us. Of course they didn't know who I was, I was standing in the mood a little <laughs> you know. They have no idea who I am, except Benny. Benny, Benny came by and gave me a hug. Benny and Benny, we're, you know, we're tight. But but all the rest of them, you know, walking around, and I couldn't help but notice, and, and I'm sure these are men of God, and you know what, I pray for their ministry. But, but it just happened that when I looked at every one of them, every one of them was talking. They were, they, were, they were giving their deal. I mean, they were always advising the crowd, except for Charles Stanley. I watched Charles Stanley walk from one end of that convention center to the other and be stopped by probably 25 or 30 people. And Charles Stanley did not say more than a half a dozen words the whole time. All he did was listen to those people and encourage them and love them and pat them and grin at them. Boy, I tell you, my estimation of him went up 500%. Be very careful of anybody who talks more than they listen because they're not talking about what they've heard. They're just talking about what they feel. Be very careful of that. And that's exactly what the church needs to do. We need to listen. We need to behold God more than we talk. So that when we talk, it is of God. It is not that we live in an in a, in a, 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 a unbelieving culture. We have a very believing culture. As a matter of fact, we have a great zeal for God. Look at, look at Romans chapter 10, verse 2. We're much like the Jews in this thing. We, it says here... For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Do you know that we're one of the most, if not the most, one of the most religious nations in the world? In this country, according to a Harris poll two years ago, 95% of the people in this country believe in God. That is mind-boggling. 80% of them claim to be Christians. Watch this. Of the ones who said they weren't Christians even 52% of them believed in the resurrection. Does that boggle your mind? Almost half of our population goes to church every Sunday. That compares with 2.2% in England for the Church of England. I mean, it is a hu- we're very religious people. But with that zeal, we have very little knowledge. 64% according to that same poll said that, you know, there really aren't any moral absolutes. they got to make up their own minds. And 43% said that when they decide what's right and wrong, they don't go outside themselves, they go in their heart. Now that is a nation that is crippled theologically, that doesn't have an understanding of that great and high standard of God. That is a nation that has no knowledge. And it says this, For not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. See, that's where we are, and that's the great danger. God wants us to understand this, and I'll I'll, I'll just say this and, and then I'll quit. God wants us to fathom His absolute mystery and holiness and otherness. Rudolf Otto, this great uh, German theologian, said, God is the mysterium tremendum. The one who is so mysterious it makes us tremble. God is the numinous. He is that, that feeling that we can't even give voice to. That is so other than us. God is so literally awesome. How big is your God? God. How often do you tremble before God? How often do you uh, catch a glimpse of how high and holy and lifted up He really is? Look in, in uh, Isaiah. I shouldn't have said I'll say this and quit. i get your hopes up. This is in 739. In the year of King this is a, this is a low spiritual point for Judah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Let me tell you what has just happened here. God, Isaiah has saw this, seen this vision, and God is sitting on the throne of, the, the Hebrew word is palace, as well as temple. So they're picturing God as not only Lord of lords, but King of kings. He says, and the seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. Do you understand that he's he's protecting the only two places that could soil that atmosphere? Remember when Jesus said, be careful of the words that come out of your mouth because they show the state of your heart. And so he's covering his mouth. And remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Why? Because they were dirty. They were soiled. And so he he has two sets of those wings so that he doesn't soil the atmosphere from who he is. And with the other set, he's flying. And then it says this, And One called out to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Let me tell you why it's so important that we keep a picture of this. That is the only thing that will pull us out of our little selfism, our little forms of self-destruction. It It was what pulled the German nation, the German church out of the tyranny of one man. You know, when Hitler was building his forces in the 1930s, at first the church capitulated. They thought, well, maybe this guy will restore morality to our country. And their motto, many of them was, swastika on our chest, Christ in our hearts. But then many of them figured out who Hitler really was. And they started the resistance. Martin Niemöller wrote a sermon, Christus is mein Fuhrer. Christ is my Fuhrer. In other words, there is nobody higher than Christ. He is the one I pay attention to. He had a Christ above the Fuhrer. And as he went to prison, and as Bonhoeffer went to prison, The church of the resistance stayed strong. So strong that in between the years of 1933 and 1937, the New York Times alone ran almost a thousand articles about the German church who was resisting Hitler. Why do you think they had the strength to do that? Because they had a transcendent God. They had a God that was high above any earthly king. Well, we don't have one personal despot in this country. What we have is a lot of little personal despot temptations. A lot of little things that can pull us off, that can distract us, that can make us pay attention to ourselves and make us think we're the center of the universe. We need that same, same transcendent understanding of God. That is our pursuit. That is our goal. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you are God and we are not. That takes a tremendous weight from us and it helps us worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you that you are our God of mystery, that your standards are higher than we can ever come to, but with Jesus Christ in our lives, we can come closer and at the same time be acceptable to you because his righteousness has become ours. And so therefore, dear God, we ask you not to let us settle for a little personal or parochial God Help us to understand you as the God beyond all categories who shed your majesty and mystery on your people to their wonderment and their betterment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.